Hello and welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind and how it works, mental illness and mental health. With me is Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Today we're talking about bullies. What makes someone a bully? How do you deal with a bully? Uh, The first thing many think about when they hear the word bully is the schoolyard, but bullies exist at work, in friend groups, to varying degrees, even in families. What's bullying about? Is it all about the bully asserting power? Why do people do it? And assuming you're not a bully, what do you do if you come into contact with a bully? Do you humour them and try and avoid conflict or stand up to them and push back? Standing up to them, that sounds, you know, like what they do in movies, I stood up to the bully, but in life it's pretty hard actually, and maybe it'll just end up making things worse. So uh, let's examine bullying, bullies, and what to do about it. Ian, what is a bully? That's actually a really good question, James, because I think the definition has kind of changed and somewhat loosened over time. I think we all used to know what bullying was. An example of schoolyard bullies, bullies in institutions, I always think English boarding schools. Armies, hierarchy organisations with a great deal of physical intimidation, bigger people, and then also the active use of exclusion, you know, picking on someone, usually by creating a social group and then recruiting people who perhaps didn't really want to be recruited by some person. So the six-on-one type stuff and then the humiliation of the person who is the subject of those particular things. I think we used to have pretty clear ideas. And I must say in my field... It was perhaps underrated in the past as to the extent to which it was the cause of much, not just childhood distress, but ongoing mental health problems. So about 25, 30 years ago in the mental health field, people started to take bullying really seriously, bullying in childhood, bullying in adolescence, you know, when you're forming identity and that sense of exclusion and that sense of really being put down much more seriously. I think in recent times, the definitions sort of widen much, much more in social relationships, in workplaces, in other organisations, as to a whole range of other unacceptable behaviours where either power is being asserted or people are being actively excluded. And, but the same phenomena of mm. forming groups and in some way uh, humiliating or deriding certain characteristics of an individual so that they are made to feel terrible about themselves. Not just excluded, they're made to feel terrible about themselves. And I reckon many of us have been in a friend group, particularly, you know, in your teens and 20s where people are, a lot of people are trying to work out who they they are and how it all works, where someone's just kind of picked on a little bit, maybe someone in the group, you know, if you say something that isn't as funny as you thought it was going to be, they'll, they'll go at you, but it's never anything that's you know, outrightly hostile. It's just a little bit of undermining, like pushing someone down to get yourself a bit... Yeah, so the expression I think we heard Greg use in one of the recent episodes, punching down. You know, the punching down socially, one group against another, creating a group, you know, to deride another, to improve the status of the group that's originated the behaviour. So I think it has become associated now with a whole lot of other social behaviours that are much more complicated, whereas in the past we would have associated much more, I think, with physical intimidation, with childlike behaviour. And then, you know, in the schoolyard bullying and other certain sorts of groups, certainly when I was a kid, you know, picking on kids from different uh, ethnic backgrounds, picking on kids who would just look different in particular ways. But a lot of that was transient. 
It might have been stupid and it might have certainly very hurtful, but it was transient. Yeah. Now I think we've come to say, hang on a second, this goes on in society in a much wider way, as you said, goes on in families, goes on in social groups in much more subtle ways. So I think in a different way, we've now got into a different kind of discourse about bullying lifelong and about the way in which social groups really matter, but can be quite dysfunctional. You know, they can actually cause a great deal of hurt in those settings. Mm. So I want to focus on, you know, the best way to react to a bully because I think that that's uh, – people spend a lot of time when they're in that sort of a situation trying to work out what the best thing to do is. But firstly, let's try and get to why it happens. I mean, my working hypothesis is that bullying is about people trying to assert power and dominance to kind of – in a way, establish their own position in the social hierarchy. Yes, and often the and I, yes, yes, and often yeah, the yeah. people who are doing it actually guess what have very fragile identities, right? So they're generally mm. rounding up, getting the troops on their side to assert their control over others. So it's absolutely a power dynamic, but often by people who are a bit fragile about it. You know, actually don't have a lot of confidence themselves. But if I'm physically bigger and can beat the other kid up or I can form my own group and exclude the others, then I am more important. You know, so it's kind of interesting about uh, people who engage in a lot of bullying are often very uncertain about their own actual value and their sense. And often, often in another sense, obviously, fairly insensitive about the concerns and the impacts and the feelings of others. So you often get this kind of combination of relatively low empathy and relatively fragile ego. Now, I think we see in the public domain a lot of people who fit into that kind of category right across the political world in the last 10 years. You might have seen a lot of this going on. And then really hurtful, horrible things that are said you know, against other groups or against other individuals, you know, really abusive things that are said to somehow puff up the chest of that person or that group you know, to assert their dominance when clearly they feel pretty threatened themselves. So they're pretty fragile. That hostility, turning the anger outwards against others, reflects hmm, your fair share of psychological problems on the bully side. And and is it something where if you're a bully at you know 15, you might you're probably going to be a bully at 55, or is it something? And I reckon this is more likely that as you get older and hopefully wiser you might be able to grow out of. Yes, I bullied people sometimes at 17, but I now realise what I did and I feel bad about it and I don't do it anymore. James, you're such a hopeful person. That's what we hope for all the time. We hope that <laughs> humans are maturing. So, look, you know, we go back to the schoolyard thing. This happens a lot in primary school. It happens a lot in little kids. Inevitably, it happens in adolescence as people are forming various social groups and reforming those social groups and trying to find out who the hell they are and where they fit in. So you see a lot of this sort of behaviour going on, you know, three against one and then the other three changes against the other one and, you know, somebody's in, somebody's out and there's a lot of nastiness goes on. And you hope as brains grow and as social experience grows, go, hang on, that isn't very helpful. Let's stop that and move on to more thoughtful, you know, more consideration of and and more inclusive, frankly, behaviour over time. And in functional families, workplaces, adult groups, you hope, you hope that's where we're all, you hope that's where we're all headed. Is there evidence that, you know, there's a smaller percentage of 50-year-old bullies than 20-year-old bullies? Yes. Yeah, so in bullying behaviour, yes, in bullying behaviour, yeah. I mean, thank God, because 
I think we're over the top. You get over the top. Maturation does happen eventually for most of us in a certain kind of way, either by experience or by intrinsic biological processes. So, yeah. And, and I think also the social setting has changed. So I think where this, these behaviours were perpetuated in the past by very hierarchical organisations, by very power-dominated organisations, you know, with a often bloke in charge held the power and asserted mm. that, exercised that power through a hierarchy of bullying. So the classic English boarding school type approach, principal bully, then bullies, you know, bullies assisting and then bullies down the kind of thing, setting up a whole social hierarchy as has happened in, you know, military forces, as has happened in other sort of dictatorships, as has happened in other areas where you have a whole hierarchy of this stuff going on being repeated. That kind of stuff has become obviously socially less uh, less tolerated, at least in our society, it's less tolerated. Good. So you think in a really good way, we've matured as a society to say, hang on a second, <laughs> this is really bad. And it's really bad for people's mental health. You know, it actually does harm. It isn't just trivial or we can't just laugh it off quite in the way that we used to laugh these things off. It actually causes serious harm. Well, in some institutions, uh, like, I don't know, uh, traditional image of, of boarding houses, was... It, it appears there was a view that a bit of bullying is, you know, it's good. It's the way, look, I copped it and when I was in year seven or, and so now that I'm in year 11, it's my turn to dish it out and it didn't kill me. Maybe it helped me build some resilience and, and so that's what I'm doing. It's, uh, it's the way it works. They need to know their place and work their way up through the ranks. Uh, maybe in, you know, other institutions – uh, after school, some workplaces, or uh, there was a bit of that too. Is there any validity in that? Let me help you build resilience by bullying you? No. And we need Good. to call it out. Now, I've dumped on all the other professions and organisations. Let me dump on my own. So in medicine, there was this marvellous tradition that we had this thing, the uh, rites of passage, you know, trial by fire, young doctors, mm-hmm. right. Two things, and I mean, armies do First of all, we'll put them through a terrible training period and that'll knock out the weak ones, right? So we'll just, they'll just drop in the field. Introductory training yeah. in the ADF, Australian Defence Forces, or in medicine, you know, intern, resident years, those who are left out. If you ever get to read it, read the book House of God. Fabulous, you know, kill off all the young doctors who can't cope. Then those who have survived will, of course, will have selected the resilient ones, i.e. the low empathy, low sensitivity, not very pleasant ones, and they will then succeed. And they'll be the good ones. And, of course, they believe then that this is what is the right thing to do transgenerationally. So then when they're in charge, having been through it, they'll impose it on the next generation. And this is the optimal way mm. for the professions. So we've had a real problem in medicine, much called out in our senior areas. Some people, a bit like surgeons, sometimes a bit unfairly being the only focus of it. It isn't just surgeons. It's been a medical specialty kind of thing for a long time and it's played out against individuals on this individual resilience nonsense. But it's also then played out against various groups. You don't look like us. You don't sound like us. We don't really want you in the club anyway. Um, And we've seen it. We've seen it against overseas doctors and all sorts of things. You know, really, same sort of exclusion behaviour. But your point, a very good one, James, this transgenerational nonsense that somehow there's a there's a logic in this that this is what we need these hard resilient i'm going low empathy unsympathetic insensitive people and they should repeat the behavior so there's the really nasty bit is 
in our societies. Uh, uh, Jackie Troy, we've had on this uh, podcast, and people should go back and listen to Jackie. She notes, and she's from Indigenous background, geez, you Western guys are weird. You invented English boarding schools where you send six-year-olds to learn this stuff, abandon them from their parents, and then guess what? They do the same thing to their kids. And then they justify it that this is Western civilization at its best. Yes. Before now, one more thing before we get into causes. Uh, sorry, what to do about bullying? Bullying in families. So there's all sorts of ways families can be dysfunctional. Is bullying an appropriate word sometimes? Absolutely. So you think about hierarchical social structures that really matter. Well, most people say family's number one. So classically, you do see this. You might have parents, particularly historically dads, doing this with their kids, toughen them up, give them a hard time. You know, put them through a bit of humiliation. You ever been to those football matches with dads on the sideline yelling at their kids? What a useless, hopeless halfback, fullback, rugby league playing kid you are or something. You're a disgrace to the family. You know, that kind of stuff. So you see that uh, parents with kids. You also see it, of course, within siblings, within families. You know, certain groups, whatever, trying to assert who's in charge, you know, within, within certain groups or through certain individuals. Typically, of course, older siblings against younger siblings in particular kinds of ways. So like many things, things in families are often less spoken about and more hidden. And of course, they're more normalised. If you're a kid growing up in a family, like, isn't this how all families are? Isn't that how all dads behave? Isn't that how all older brothers or sisters behave? You know, so the difficulty for families is it's normalised because most kids know what they know from what's happening. So, so is it uh, reasonably likely that a bully at school might be themselves being bullied at home? So the classic discussion these days, if you see it in the playground, is uh, what does your dad do? Uh, what have you been experiencing? Where did, you, where did you learn this stuff? You know, because this just ain't so normal anymore. And then you do run into, well, yeah, dad did it and his dad did it to him. And, you know, you read all the great so-called biographies of some of our great leaders. You hear this, you know, granddad did it to dad, dad did it to whatever. <clears throat> we can think of some great uh, transgenerational families, very famous in Australia, in many industries and whatever else. You know, granddad was a complete nightmare and guess what? The son's a nightmare and the grandson's a nightmare. And clearly, clearly that pattern of behaviour has run across. And then that's the way they've behaved in the wider society. That's the way to succeed. That's the road to success. Hard, driven knock out the others and knock them out by humiliation, not just by competition, but by attempt to mm. degrade them in the eyes of others. Okay, let's get on to the best way to react to, to a bully. I would have thought the best way, if it's possible, and I know you're a fan of this strategy, um, uh, avoidance. So I know um, you've you've said previously, if you've got a fear of spiders, yes, you can um, deliberately and and, and uh, gradually expose yourself to spiders and gradually decrease that fear, or you can just stay away from spiders, avoid it, and you'll never be anxious. So, it's the best way just to, if you can, get out of the way. Don't get, don't be in contact. I love with it them. when you use my own strategies against me, James. <laughs> All right, we'll change topics here, so we're going to change strategies. So, there is a, well, the first thing, of course, it is very bad to be in this situation. So, you know, like when you're putting yourself in danger, you know, I'm not in favour of leaving your hand on the hot plate or standing in the fire while it's happening just to expose yourself to it. So there is an issue of getting out, but how do you get out in various things? So, Well, well, actually, that, yeah, we should expand on that because how does it make you feel? Like if you know you've got, you've got to go to work, you've got to go to school and no one's going to punch you up or, you know, 
or swear at you or, or tell you you're hopeless, but you know you're going to be exposed to these little niggling, niggling, niggling comments that can be enormously stressful. It can really affect your life. Absolutely. And if you look at why kids don't go to school in particular kinds of ways, we talk about anxious kids who don't go to school, but you know, for younger kids and certainly through high school, you'll often come back and say, well, actually, I'm being bullied. Actually, I'm being excluded. Actually, really nasty things are happening. And, and a lot of them are much more covert than they were in the past. You're not getting punched out every day in the playground anymore. You're not getting physically tortured anymore, which happened a lot in boys' schools in the past, but actually being humiliated every day, you're being degraded every day, you're being excluded every day, and some characteristic of yours is being used to gang up on you. So, yeah, it's actually – and so in these days for a lot of kids who are struggling with anxiety and difficulty or school avoidance, often the first question that gets asked is, are you being bullied at school? Like, what's going on? And people, because of the subtlety of it, and, of course, these days the uh, elaboration of it, through social media and through other technologies. So it's not just happening in the school ground, it's happening afterwards, it's happening through shared social media, it's happening through a range of other things. It's really intense and amplified. Big problem. So But 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 there's a line, isn't there? Like, you know, at school, I went to an all boys school, everyone got chipped about something. I had a big nose, so that was my thing, and I used to feel really sensitive about it. But then the kid next to me had weird hair. And I'd probably say something about his hair and jump in and and it's it's very hard to know is this just normal and I'm I'm weak and oversensitive and fragile or ha, ha, is someone crossing the line? Here? So I think that's why the whole thing has become much more complicated. On behalf of men with big yeah. noses, okay, we can form our yes. own club. <laughs> you know, someone pointed out to me recently the size of my Roman nose, to which I showed them a picture of my dad. They said, "Oh, we're pretty confident about who your dad is," you know. But, you know and I've shared with some of my children the same nasal characteristics. You know that that issue of being, oh, of course, people comment on things, and it's particularly true in teenage years, etc. You know, who's prettier, yeah. who's more attractive, who's more muscular, who's a weed, who's a you know that sort of stuff. So, you know, this is not about simply saying everyone, every comment, you know, every kind of thing that's a lack sensitivity is bullying, you know, or any comment that I might make about you, you know, geez, James, you're not that funny, you know, is actually a bullying, harassing, you know, so I think, as we've discussed elsewhere, I think we do have to be careful about not pathologizing every sort of social interaction as a problem, but systematic, ongoing, you know, sets of issues um, do need to be addressed. And I think this has made life more complicated in the schoolyard. It's made life more complicated in the workplace and in other areas. You know, what degree of ordinary social chit-chat, the odd insensitive comment, you know, <laughs> the odd and the odd humorous comment, you know, in particular ways, isn't really intended to harm, isn't really that adverse a comment. Mm. It's distinct from, you know, systematic and repeated patterns of behaviour which clearly are tended, clearly are attended to cause harm or to exclude uh, another. Yeah, well, yeah, the grey area is very interesting between, you know, the former and, and the latter, and it's not a binary thing. You're either, you're either just throwing in the odd comment or alternatively you're systematically trying to exclude people. There's a heck of a lot in the middle where possibly even the bully doesn't know what they're doing. It's just the way they, the way they operate. So if avoiding it, i.e. not going to school, changing jobs, uh, whatever, moving, changing families, it is not a good strategy. If you, I think of it on a, on a uh, spectrum between humouring them and taking it at one end uh, 
and doing what they do in the movies and standing up to them and telling them forcefully how you feel at the other end with probably the third alternative seeking help from a third party. Yeah, so let's go through that. You know, the, I'm going to fight them. We're going to shirt front them. You know, <laughs> we're going to shirt front them on the international borders. We're going to shirt front them. That great American, they're going to fight the bully physically. Dumb idea. You know, that is so mid-20th century, I don't know, somewhere that kind of – because in effect it just increases the physicality of the whole thing as if this is a really a physical fight for power and in the schoolyard, on the international borders, whatever. I think what's meant really behind that is actually calling out the behaviour, which is yeah. really – so not physically fighting it, but they're going, hang on, this is unacceptable, right? So that – and most people who are being bullied – don't feel they can do that. They've already been humiliated. They've already been degraded. They've already been disempowered. That's a word. You know, they've already been made to feel useless. So in this sense, assistance, there's two areas. There's, there's actually what is the social situation in which you can recruit assistance? Because really bullying is about getting six against one. You know, it isn't really one against one. It's really six against one. The bully's really usually recruiting some other group to all pile on. So I think the issue is, okay, how, if you're in that situation, do you actually manage to change that power dynamic to change the situation, which is mm. a social, because this is a social phenomenon of exclusion, really, how do you get others on your side? In families, hard, because if it's a parental thing, that's very difficult to recruit others. If it is amongst kids, then recruiting parents or recruiting others or externally to actually deal with it, important. In the schoolyard, in, in school situations now, actually bringing attention to that through school processes really important, you know, when it's significant. So if your kid's being bullied at school, I mean, taking it up with the school, you know, what's really going on in certain kinds of ways. Of course, school teachers and school communities, I think now are much more aware. In the workplace, I think similarly, how to do this. Now, without – how to do this socially without necessarily making it legal. I don't want to bring in your ex-career, James, as a legal person. But often once people get very legalistic with it, it gets difficult, you know, um, as distinct from can you solve it more normally <laughs> – without necessarily arriving at litigation <laughs> about it. And this is where workplaces are really struggling, I think, at the moment. How do you get uh, team-based structures, social structures, things that pick up subtle things earlier on and make it clear that if somebody or someone within those groups who particularly holds a more senior position or a more powerful position is actually behaving that way, how does that get identified and called out before it becomes very problematic for those who are exposed to it? So I think what you're suggesting is, you know, person A is feels bullied by person B, person A goes to their mutual boss, person C, and says, this is happening and I don't want to sue anyone or whatever, but I would like you to deal with it. Then person C talks to the to the bully and says, we've had a complaint about you and we would like you to modify your behaviour and they say, who's complaining about me? And Presumably they have to tell them and then the whole thing just gets maybe – maybe it gets better but it's also extremely awkward for those two uh, A and B work. So in my world, that's step three. Step one step, – this is normally right. going on in social groups. The step three, making a formal complaint, and sometimes, of course, it is necessary to make a formal complaint because it's persistent and it's harmful and it's unacceptable. But step one is usually this happens in groups. It may actually be with co-workers. It may be with others. Look, I'm pretty uncomfortable about the way that A – or was it A? A or B in your example, Jim? I'm pretty uncomfortable with the way he is behaving and the things he says about me in particular kinds of ways. And I, I feel, you know, it ain't just humour. It ain't just normal social commentary with the other people. Because really, it's often about recruiting those others into a particular group 
where actually if those others turn around and go, you know what, yeah, you're right, we're not party to this, that, then you're going to deal with it much more locally in the first place. And it may well be reflecting back. Look, I know you didn't necessarily mean it to be harmful or whatever else, but every time you say something about that person's age, looks, social background, whatever else, it's actually not funny anymore and it's not okay. Now, in a lot of social situations, people go, oh, oh sorry. Um, I th- but it was just a well, joke. Well, yeah. They say. Yeah, just but you joke. did it 10 times. It wasn't funny and it's causing harm. <laughs> you go, uh. Right. That's hard to do. That is very But if you think about what do. we do normally in all sorts of things, I mean, I think, James, you've told the old bad joke in your life and people, people didn't laugh. No. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, and then you told the same. But it wasn't just a joke. It was directed at someone in a particular way. And you did it three or four or five mm-hmm. times or every time you meet or every time that group gets together, you do the same thing. You know, it's meant to make the group laugh. It's meant to make the other person feel bad. It's meant to exclude the other person or to exert some power over them in a particular way. So I think there's a so- this is about social group function, okay? It's about actually the rest of the group. So I think the other issue is for those of us who are observers, who are – in other words, in bullying, there's often a party, there's a group of observers going on, right? It isn't just one-on-one. It's about recruiting a group against one in a particular way, you know, and, and therefore many of us are passive, if you like, when perhaps we should be more active in the particular thing. We can see what's well, going on and we should be more active. to go, you know what, it ain't okay. I'm not amused. I don't want to be party to this, you know, <laughs> and it's gone over the line. You're making that judgment. It's gone over the yeah. line. I went to a school reunion a couple of years ago and there was a lot of talk about that at our school because there was some bullying at our school and we reckoned maybe 5 or 10% of people were bullies and 5 or 10% people were bullied. But the majority... The, the, the people I was talking to there, we were all in the 80% that weren't bullied and weren't bullies, but our biggest regret consistent across the whole group was that we hadn't done anything to stand up to the bullies. We'd been passive, we'd been observers, and we'd probably even been, you know, an audience, an amused audience at times. So you do have a responsibility if you're in a group and there are, and it's going on, not just to be passive, because, you know, 20 years later, you'll hate yourself. I regret uh, the schoolyards I grew up in, which were very white, dominated, whatever. You know, there was consistent bullying of kids from Asian backgrounds. There was consistent bullying of kids from Italian and Greek backgrounds, wogs with funny sandwiches and whatever else. Now, the rest of us were passive. We didn't lead that stuff necessarily, but we were passive in that. We just kind of accepted that was the dominant thing was doing and probably somewhat fearful that we would be next for some reason or other, big noses or whatever else it was, you know. If you didn't participate, if you didn't agree, it would turn on you in due course. And nobody yeah, wants that. That's right. If you stood up for the bully, if you stood up to the bully, you would then be in the category of the bullied. You would be with them, with the Absolutely. And, and nobody wants to be excluded. So the fear of exclusion for the rest of us often drives us in this. Now, you can see this in the political world really playing out and has played out over the last 10 years, abusing a particular group, attacking a particular group in order to recruit that group. And it's the passive group. So it is interesting in terms of asserting blame here. (laughs) You know, I have a favourite Second World War analogy, and I sort of apologise for this a moment, but, you know, uh, the Germans wreaked havoc across Europe, but people knew they were doing it. Countries like Sweden actually said, oh, we're just neutral. It's okay for the Germans to pass through and persecute the Norwegians, right? And that's a really interesting issue. still runs in Scandinavia about who people are most angry with. The Swedish? For just collaborating. Oh, it wasn't my problem. I didn't start it. I was neutral. 
It was obvious mm. in the German sense, like obvious who was to blame. But really, really, a lot of the issues have to do with the others allowing these things to happen. So we can't afford to be Sweden. Apologise to the Swedish. It's past, but if you get my point, you know, it actually it's allowing it to happen. It's a social group behaviour. So the eighty percent, as you said, James, I think is where the problem lies, and that kind of there, yeah. and that's where the judgment about the line lies too. You know, yeah. So it isn't just that we all have. I've got one point of view. You've got another point of view. There's fifty five different points of view. Generally, amongst the eighty percent. There's some degree of consensus about where that line actually is. That doesn't it doesn't attack humour. It doesn't prevent commentary. It doesn't prevent in the workplace serious review of performance. For example, you know, with people are underperforming or there are serious conversations that need to be have are not prevented by simply dragging out the bullying card. Oh no, if my boss comments on my yeah. performance, he or she is bullying me you know, type stuff. No, they're not, actually. You haven't been to work and you haven't done anything for the last six months, you know, et cetera. So when, the reason I say that is that when you get to the litigation stage or the complaint stage and you see this playing out in the HR departments of all organisations all over the place, this conflict between performance review and bullying, you know, type dis- discussions. It's distinct from what we're really talking about is happening in social groups all the time. And now... Can. So I think the really interesting thing is the shift from is it the fault of the bully or the person being bullied to is it actually up to the other 80% of us most of the time in most of these situations to be a bit clearer about where the socially acceptable yeah. lines are and where they are not. In popular culture, what always happens is that someone is bullied and then they make a stand and the bullying stops. I heard a story last night. I mean, sometimes people snap. They say enough is enough. I had a story last night. It's kind of a funny story now, but it would have been very traumatic at the time. A friend of mine went to uh, changed high schools and he, he was getting bullied a bit and a kid used to sit in the back row and he was in the second back row and like chuck things at the back of his head all through maths and even flick his hair and whatever. And he he, he just, you know, he didn't do anything, he didn't do anything. And then one day he snapped and he stood up and he got, he put his hands on the front of the kid behind his desk and just started pushing it and walked, pushed it all the way back to the bullying kid was kind of trapped behind his desk, pushed right up against the back wall. And then my friend went and sat down and the math teacher, who I think knew what was going on, just kind of looked and saw what had happened, then went, all right, question 18, let's go on and basically let it happen. And the bullying stopped. And uh, so two things that I want you to comment on, A, snapping, but B, that thing that the moment where you decide I've had enough of this and I'm going to push back is going to solve the problem because it's very common in popular culture and people do get that message. Yes, so I think it's a popular culture solution. I don't think it happens much in real life. The point, problem being, it is very hurtful. The person is very disempowered, right? So the idea that they could actually do that, just before the snapping bit, you know, they could actually do that and then that will totally turn the thing on its head, as if, as if also the bully person is really responsive to that, you know, going back to their generally people who are really bullying are generally unresponsive to kind of stuff. You're more likely to see a brawl than anything else come out of that. So the confrontation often leads not to resolution but to further conflict, in fact, between the respective yeah. parties. On the snapping bit, which I think is at the heart of this, is the psychological harm bit is intense in that particular thing. So in my own experience, I've seen kids, and I remember this from my own school 
days, kids actually fall apart. They didn't actually get up and take on the bully. They fell apart in the classroom or whatever, and then they were mm. out of the classroom. They were gone. So the psychological harm was significant and ongoing. It wasn't empowering for the person kind of affected. So I think it's a great idea we all have, but the truth is that's a very rare kind of outcome, probably stands out in the story you're telling because it's so unusual to actually resolve the thing. But I guess it does – it highlights a need to resolve the issue, but I think it also downplays that the usual outcome is the opposite. The usual outcome is just this escalation of psychological harm to the person being bullied. So the suggestions, as I understand it, are if you're in a a group, try and talk openly with other members of of the group about what is happening and and enlist their support and maybe even a brave volunteer who will talk to the person who's bullying for you, uh, with you. If you're in a workplace situation, you're saying that a formal or formal, informal, whatever, complaint is, is not the first stage. But I, kind of recruiting a group becomes a little bit more awkward in a workplace situation. You know, is it beneficial just to say, have a, a quiet word with the person and say, look, I really wish you'd stop that because, you know, maybe it's maybe it's partially me and I'm very sensitive, but it, it just I find it very unpleasant and I'd, I'd like you to stop. So just being on a few of those things uh- – of course, in some situations, people have to complain. In a lot of the situations in the workplace, which are more hierarchical, you know, you can't yeah. really have a chat with your boss and say, look, I really don't like the way you do <laughs> You might have to be forced into it and the, the bosses or, or someone further up the hierarchy's persistent pattern of behaviour may be that way in particular. And I think we now in many workplaces have mechanisms for that, raising informally and then formally that there's a problem and trying to, you know, trying to manage the problems early rather until they really escalate. The, the having the chat through a third party, what I was really saying earlier on is groups of people can chat. Groups of people, because this is really about groups of people, not just individuals, you know. And, and most of us exist in structures where there are more than one person can say, look, we don't like the general tone of the conversation. We don't like the way that this is generally working out. And on the other positive side, of course, we have a very strong positive culture now about inclusiveness, you know, going out of our way to make sure that we include people who are, come from different backgrounds or have different perspectives. And I, I just think in a really positive way, what I see much, much more these days are social groups and in workplaces and others that go out of their way to say, okay, somebody else does come from a different background. Somebody else does talk differently. Somebody else behaves differently. We've got to kind of adapt to that, you know, and, and, and see the value of diversity in that. And that, that can be a bit challenging because it comes have to sort of moderate the sort of behaviour we have. We have to moderate the speech we have in certain kinds of way, moderate things that we've taken for granted because the social group was pretty homogenous before to be a bit different and take account of different sensitivities that we didn't take account. So I think there's a positive side of all this going on, not just the calling out or the restricting us. I think there's a lot of debate, you know, about cancel culture and identity wars and blah, 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 as if all this is all about knocking people's identity out or restricting speech or whatever. I don't think it is, actually. It's about saying, look, People do come from different backgrounds, they have different sensitivities, they have different understandings, they have different cultural traditions. How do we accommodate those things and still function as social mm. groups in particular ways and not do what we tended to do in the past, which is gang up all the people like us against the one who is different in some way or other in order to assert the connectedness between us or maintain our control over the organisation, the family, the cultural group, national politics, the parliament, whatever, by rounding up all the people who look and sound like us and, and degrading the others 
you know, whatever they might be. And I mean, this is where I think the social discourse more widely in our wider world, amplified through social media, but not initiated by social media, but, but initiated by the popular politics of the day, is very problematic. Because I think we see a lot of, despite what we're trying to do in this sort of pro-social way we're discussing, James, there are a lot of counter forces running at the moment that amplify all this stuff, that encourage differentiation, that encourage isolation of social groups, that encourage a really hostile you know, attack on the other uh, and a language in order to try and, you know, bump up numbers on your own side. So it's an interesting time we live in, I think, between a departure between what's happening in small social groups in the workplace Mm. and what's actually playing out in national and international discourse. I reckon another good strategy is – so someone made a crack about me a a couple of years ago and – I thought it crossed the line, but then again, I know I'm very sensitive and, and I ended up kind of gaslighting myself in that saying, well, you know, I'm kind of upset about this, about this, but I guess that means that I'm just really oversensitive. I'm not tough. And it was just going round and round in my head. Did they cross the line or am I, you know, a fault in, uh, is this a fault in my perception of, of, of what happened? So I just rang a friend who knew us both and said, this is what happened. And I basically, you know, gave them a, a, a verbal transcript of the conversation he, and I said, am I being oversensitive? He said, no, that was a dick comment. Um, so, I, you know, running it past a third party, if you do find it getting, you know, it, it just going round and round in your head and you can't work out what the rights and wrongs are is a, is a pretty good idea. An excellent idea. Now, for those, because mm. let's hope that people who are more sensitive than others actually listen to this podcast, okay? I'm going to make the assumption that people who bothered and who are still listening are up the more sensitive end of the thing, you know, are thoughtful about these issues. So there is a danger, you know, am I being overly sensitive in a particular thing? So asking another or members of the social group, often people who misread social signals also can think they're being bullied or not and they're not really sure. Getting impact, getting a sort of information from others is actually really important. What, what did others actually think? Because I think sensitive people sometimes take too much. You know, they sometimes go, oh, it's just me. You know, fair enough. It's okay. You know, when actually it's not okay at all. And other people just have gone along with it because it's so much easier most of the time just to go along with it. You know, if you have to sort of make a statement every five minutes about what's unacceptable, it gets a bit boring, a bit drab. But whereas, whereas other stuff that's persistent, that's highly personalized, that's meant the intention is clearly to degrade. The intention is clearly to humiliate. You know, there's nothing really funny about it. It's a deli- you know, and I think that's the. I don't think it's that grey a line actually. When people do that, you know, you know the people well, you know the sort of patterns of behaviour, and the the genuine bullies, if you like, they do it all the time, and they don't just do it to one person. It's a it's a repeated pattern of behaviour, and most of us pick it out. But here's a consolation for the rest of us: they're probably not happy, are they? No. They're going back to where we started. They're generally insecure. They're generally pretty immature. They're generally concerned. And the only way they've got of actually being liked or being, more importantly, powerful, potent, is this kind of constant attempt to degrade or attack others and somehow to get people on their side as part of that. So they probably see everything as transactional. I won that interaction. You know, I, I asserted my power, um, so I won. But that's not happiness or meaningful. That's just a scorecard. Yeah, well, I think the transactional thing, James, I think, sadly, again, you can see this in organisations, you can see it in national politics, you can, you know, 
Who cares if I killed the nation? I won the election. Who cares if I killed international yeah. relationships? I won, the, I won the argument. You know, I think, unfortunately, yeah. there are so many bad role models of this out there in the world. I won. And go back to the, uh, let's say, the US kind of driven, I won at all costs. The triumph of the individual over the enemy, whatever the enemy is or whatever you call it this kind of week. Now, of course, mm. that's not just a US thing. In totalitarian states and whatever else, clearly the same strongman, the strongman idea is a, is a bullying idea, you know, it's the, it, you know, and it actually yeah. reflects the weakness, the intrinsic weaknesses. I mean, it's really interesting in the end of the day, if you think democracies are actually the winner, they're actually the weakest structures, right? They don't have those structures. They rely at the end on a social consensus, peaceful transfer of power. It's okay to let the other guys have a go. You know, they actually, they actually depend on some people losing. For democracies mm. to work, somebody has to lose, you know, actually, yeah, right. for social functions to work, somebody has to give in. Somebody has to compromise. Otherwise, we'd be in conflict and killing each other all the time. In a civil society, in the, in the legal cases, James, somebody loses. If you force yeah, the judge to make a right. decision, guess what? Somebody loses, you know. So exactly. that kind of stuff. And uh, as you know, James, I much prefer mediation to litigation. You know, if somebody can work this stuff out in real time, you avoid that kind of conflict. So, you know, I think what's going on in more civil societies, and I think in a lot of our workplaces, a lot of our institutions, and I think I was being rude about the Australian Defence Forces earlier on, they're, they're a great example of people who really have changed in this kind of way trying to remove, although they still have hierarchies of command, they're not trying to have hierarchies that are based on bullying and harassment, you know, some of the institutions that are trying to rebirth themselves, you know, churches, other hierarchical organisations, uh, workplaces, they're seriously taking this stuff on because they realise the harm that's been done. Good. Families, still got some way to go probably. Um and in various cultures, there are still, you know, traditions that can make this hard. The individualistic culture of Western societies, I think, makes this very hard. Mm. Yeah, interesting stuff. Thanks for all that. If um, if you want to get in touch with us, send us an email at mindingyourmind2 at gmail.com, mindingyourmindneural2 at gmail.com. And this podcast is supported by Future Generation Global and the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help is available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health, Lifeline. Uh, they've all got good information. You can Google them. You can call Lifeline on 13 Talk to you next time.